Hi, I'm Jake Parker with the What's Your Story podcast. Here I talk with my guests about their life experiences as well as current and long-term goals and what gets them through the ups and downs. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe, and if you don't already, follow my Instagram account at jparkerfitlife for actionable tips daily to live a healthier lifestyle. Enjoy the show. Hi, guys. This is Jake Parker with the What's Your Story podcast. My guest today is Mike. He's with Elite Fitness Now. I met Mike over Instagram, um, I would say a week or two ago, and we sort of talked back and forth about his story, about he was how he was a nurse and a nurse practitioner, uh, had a lot of experience with martial arts and actually ended up getting injured at one point, and that has led him to his current goal of helping people to train injury-free, uh, helping people stay mobile and healthy, and just all around live a fit lifestyle. So I'll let Mike go ahead and give a little introduction on his end. Thank you so much, Jake. And as you mentioned, I'm a nurse practitioner, but I'm also a strength and conditioning specialist and a yoga instructor. And I was actually training in Israel um, in some Krav Maga, and I basically shattered the tarsal metatarsal ligament in my foot which then turned into a specialty kind of neuropathy called RSD. And for a period of about two years, I just couldn't walk. And in my youth, I worked as a firefighter paramedic, mostly as a paramedic. And I had herniated discs in the lumbar spine, the cervical spine, labral tears in the hips, rotator cuff tears in both shoulders. So it took me about two years after that injury to even be able to walk again. And during that time, I worked with uh, numerous physical therapists and pretty much everyone you can think of in the entire medical community, in addition mm-hmm. to myself being a nurse practitioner and my wife being a nurse practitioner. And after that, I found that you know every physician just wants to pump you full medications to treat pain. And that was never my goal because you know when you prescribe medications to a chronic pain patient, you still have chronic pain, but now you have an addiction. So most of my life has been spent trying to develop physical medicine and rehab tactics for myself And then as a volunteer basis, I've been giving some of these techniques out to other people that have been injured, specifically mostly tactical athletes with injuries. Um, Those have been really hurt. But also I've I've done quite a lot of as a volunteer just giving out some some free treatments. And now my wife started a company called Elite Fitness Now, which focuses on either keeping people injury-free, treating musculoskeletal pain conditions, or coming up with programs that focus heavily on on mobility, stability, and keeping people from getting injured. And I'm very excited that she lets me be a part of this. Um, I do mostly all the the voice and the video things that she tends not to like, and I consult with her um, on projects in terms of how to make people healthy. Now, she is also a nurse practitioner. She's an avid athlete. She's a martial artist. She's a gymnast. And uh, she's got a 275-pound deadlift, so she's no slouch when it comes to fitness. Wow, very impressive. So what keeps you the most busy these days? What is What are your average days like as far as what you're devoting your time and attention to? So for me personally, with as many musculoskeletal conditions I have, it takes me about three or four hours a day of my physical therapy routine to be okay. So wow. that's... Uh, it wouldn't be so bad if it was just the herniated discs. You know, that's kind of nothing. Mm-hmm. You can treat that. But the reflex sympathetic dystrophy, that's just something that's just so substantial. Because if I don't keep it up, I literally will use, lose the use of my left hand and my left foot. So most of my day is actually spent doing physical medicine and rehab. And when I'm not doing that, I do a lot of time with regards to podcasting. And I do a lot of time with regards to trying to, sp- to spread the word of how to not get hurt. And if you Mm -hmm. are getting hurt, how to treat those injuries. So I do a lot of time on YouTube videos, for example, and I'd like to do some photography, videography, as it pertains to helping others not get hurt, training properly, because most people cannot afford $150 an hour for a certified strength and conditioning specialist, and those are really your best strength coaches. Yeah, absolutely. My wife has basically put together this site with my help. Um, to basically be able to put people on a strength and conditioning program, the type that a pro athlete would have, where we cover nutrition, we cover mobility, we cover post-workout, self-myofascial release, and a pro athlete training program for basically 20 or $30 a month based on the program. So everyone has access okay. to elite fitness. Okay. So what sort of things do you try to pass on to people? Is there any lessons that you wish you would have learned earlier on about 
injury prevention and overall health and mobility? Oh, there's so many lessons, and that's a great question. Yeah. The first lesson I would say is you've got to warm up properly. Mm-hmm. And a warm-up includes some dynamic mobility work, um, joint mobility, move the head around, move the neck around, move the shoulders around, move the hips around. And then don't ever stretch pre-workout because that actually decreases your performance in the session but also increases your risk for injury. Instead, do dynamic movements like lunges in all different directions because that will mobilize the feet. It will mobilize the ankles. It will mobilize the hips. Do some dynamic stretches in the warm-up. We have one called the sumo squat to hamstring stretch that we typically love. So basically getting the body prepared for movement. Training in the right order, meaning training power before strength. And after mm-hmm. strength, metabolic conditioning. And as it pertains to, and then when we're done, having some good active stretching or yoga, and then making sure we help those tissues recover with some myofascial release techniques. Right. And so define that term for me, uh, metabolic conditioning. What do, you, what do you mean exactly when you say that? So we have three energy systems in our body, and each energy system is designed for three different purposes. So for events that last less than 20 seconds, typically 10 seconds, but less than 20 seconds, we use the phosphocreatine energy pathway, which is uh, why creatine, the, the supplement, actually helps our body actually perform much better in a strength or power movement for less than 20 seconds. Mm-hmm. For things that are less than two minutes, we use the lactate pathway, um, which is an anaerobic metabolism, um, also referred to in the, as non-oxidative phosphorylation, where we're creating energy or ATP without oxygen. So this is for high power output for upwards of say two minutes. And then anything beyond two minutes, we're actually using the aerobic pathway, which basically means with oxygen, which basically uses fat as a primary source of fuel. So to be healthy and to be a good athlete, we need to train all three of these energy systems. Spending too much time in any one energy system will actually penalize all the other energy systems. So In a sport-specific model, for example, if we're training a runner, they need a better oxidative pathway than they actually need a creatine phosphate pathway. So we do specific training specifically for that oxidative pathway and even to some degree the lactate pathway for them. But a regular athlete or a more balanced athlete, say a mixed martial artist, they've got to have a very well-developed phosphocreatine pathway because you know some of these strikes require full power. They also Mm -hmm. need a good lactate pathway because it's pretty hard when you're doing um, martial arts striking. But they also need enough of an aerobic pathway that they can survive five-minute rounds. So you're really trying to develop all these energy systems in the athlete, and you're tuning these energy systems based upon the energy system that's necessary for their sport. But for general physical preparedness, for your average athlete, for your tactical athlete or warrior, you really want to make sure you've got a good balance of all three of those energy systems. Yeah, absolutely. And so along the aspect of stretching and yoga, how do you compare and contrast uh, what someone would call stretching compared to what you're doing in yoga? And what are your, what are the different goals and uh, theories behind that? So we tend to disguise a lot of our yoga. And what I mean by that is, look, I love yoga. I was sentenced to yoga about 15 years ago by a martial arts instructor. Mm-hmm. And she had said to me, she said, you know, your side cook, which is a pretty valuable kick, doesn't look the way it needs to. You're lacking some hip mobility in a few places. Now, it was pretty interesting in those days because, you know, I could do a 315-pound clean and jerk like nothing. So I was strong mm-hmm. and powerful. And I thought I had functional flexibility. Now, I went to a yoga session or two. And in- immediately, as soon as I was, you know, striking focus mitts, my, my partner that was holding the mitt said, oh, my God, what happened to you? Why are you so much more powerful? And what was mm-hmm. actually going on is the muscles were able to, they're mobile enough that my joints were mobile enough that I could turn my hips a little faster. So how do we describe the difference between yoga and stretching? So yoga itself, if we're really looking at yoga in the truest sense, yoga is a breathing exercise, nothing more. So the goal with yoga is to link a movement to a breath and actually teach you how to get comfortable with discomfort. And I liken it to something called mental training, which we did in Israel, which was a form of mental toughness training, where we basically sat in some position, and it was a miserable position, in a 110-degree uh-huh. you know, room inside of Wingate University. And the goal is to see who could stay in this position the longest because that would make you mentally the strongest. 
And you could see the people that weren't mentally strong, they would quit in about three seconds versus the people that were really mentally strong, which did it for four hours, versus the people that weren't connected with their body, they would pass out after about two hours. They were mentally stronger than their body could handle. Wow. So yoga is about getting in an uncomfortable position, which in this case is a really good stretch or balance, and learning how to use breathing to actually become comfortable in that uncomfortable position. So yoga itself can really add a lot towards mental toughness and mobility. Whereas stretching, and you know, I'm a fan of stretching, we do both in our programs, is basically being in a position where you can enhance the tissue elasticity of the muscle with the goal of improving joint mobility. What I like about yoga as opposed to pure stretching is from an injury perspective, we're more likely to get injured when there's a big difference between our active, passive, active mobility and our passive mobility. Mm-hmm. So yoga tends to be active, at least in the standing sequences. And I know you're involved in fitness. Have you watched people do squats? Yeah, yeah. How many? I have pe- some experience. Yeah, and I know you have a lot of experience. But how many people have you seen do a correct squat? Uh, it's pretty far and few and far in between. I think that the main thing that people get caught up in is really just using too much weight and not realizing that the length of motion in a squat is such that you really don't need as much weight as most people would think. So true. You really don't need as many as much weight as many people would think. And I, one of the things that I always do a movement screen prior to working with anyone, as does anyone mm-hmm. in our company. And what we like to do is we like to put them facing the wall with their feet touching the wall and actually see how far down they can actually go without touching the wall in front of them. Mm-hmm. Because... You know, there's numerous ways to perform the squat, but typically we're looking for the movement to break at the hips and then the knees to track forward. And we find that most people can't go more than, say, six inches with their own body weight. So So the question becomes then at that point, is it a mobility problem or is it a stability problem? Is it a hip problem or is it an ankle problem? And, you know, there's thousands of guides on the internet as it pertains to improve your ankle mobility to fix your squat. Well, maybe it is an ankle problem. Maybe it isn't. So the next thing we like to do is we like to lay them on the ground and we like them to bring their hips up, their feet, uh, basically perform a squat while they're sitting on their back under no load. Now, if they have a mobility problem, they won't be able to get to the perfect squat position with their low back still firmly planted on the ground. We find often as they actually have the mobility to perform the squat, but because on the ground, they can bring their knees almost to their chest without mm-hmm. taking their low back off the ground, but they can't do it standing up. So that tells us there's a core stability problem. And if the core is not stable, what will ultimately happen is the core will actually prevent you from reaching your full range of motion under load as a protective mechanism. So in that particular case where they can get into the perfect squat position on the ground, but they can't do it standing against the wall, it's not that they need to be stretched out, although stretching them out is good they actually need to have more stable core. So that's, at least for us, we always look at the movement pattern first, and then we try and do it. So when we train our athletes or regular people, our periodization model assumes people don't have the mobility first, so we spend three weeks beginning building a base of aerobic conditioning, and then we build three weeks of mobility. And then after that, we spend three weeks on stability training long before we even even attempt to do strength. And during mm-hmm. those mobility phases, we look, I love the squat. But we don't have anybody squat for the first six weeks of training. For those first six weeks, we're basically focusing on movement patterns. We're focusing on lunges. We're focusing on co- other core stability. And by core, I don't mean rectus abdominis. I'm not referring to a six-pack, but I'm referring to all those mm-hmm. deep abdominal muscles. I'm referring to their low back. I'm referring to their glutes. I'm referring to everything. So we're building that strong, stable core. And then about on the week seven, we start introducing the squat because we've had six weeks of lunges from all angles to really mobilize the hips, the ankles to make the core more stable. We've got some core stability exercises and we're not talking crunches here. And we really want to make them stable long before we load them up. And then we load them up and we have a strength phase. We have a work capacity phase. We have a hypertrophy phase. We have a power phase. And by that point, by the end of those 18 weeks, the body's tired. So we've got to yeah. really begin from the beginning all over again. And that way we're not, we're never overtraining people because overtraining is where people are getting hurt. They're doing too much volume. Uh-huh. They're working too hard. They're not working smart enough. 
They're not doing the exercises that's going to cause their body to have a good neuroendocrine response and build muscle and lose fat. So we're really when build speed, power, and strength. So that's the way we do our training to avoid injuries. Yeah, so how do you help people separate from, I think that when you talk about that, it's a very long-term view, which is the most helpful, no doubt, but it's also not one of the things that people are really apt to focus on. So how do you get people away from focusing on the short-term goals to look at more of the long-term? And along those lines, how do you get people to uh, focus away from just the aesthetics of exercise and fitness? Well, there are actually two problems, and I'd say there are two largest challenges. Uh And what I like to tell people is, and I've done this, I've had some friends that were bodybuilders, and I've given them what I'd consider to be a nothing workout. Uh I mean, literally nothing. I had a good friend that was a bodybuilder about 10 years ago over my house, maybe 11 or 12 years ago, because it was right before I hurt my foot. And I said, "I I like to train in a manner that actually makes people strong. I gave him a very light 95-pound barbell, and I had it racked in the squat rack, so I wasn't asking for do anything complicated, and I said, I want you to do 10 perfect overhead presses and one pull-up. And then I said, I want you to do nine perfect overhead presses because it was a lightweight, and then two pull-ups until he reached uh, zero on the presses, which would be 10 pull-ups. Mm-hmm. This is right before I hurt my body, and about 25 minutes later, as he was gasping, for breath, complaining about his pump and how, how, how he couldn't do any more of the reps, looking uh-huh. like he was ready to die. And I said, this is right before I really hurt my foot, so I was completely healthy. And I said, watch me do this. Now, this wasn't like a sloppy CrossFit movement. I had completed the entire session in less than four minutes, and he said, how do you do this? I said, I'm functionally strong. Now, I will never look as good as he did, although I uh-huh. feel like I look good enough. But after that, he never trained the same way. He started training with a weight vest. He started training, you know, with our system of training. And 10 years later, 11 years later, 12 years later, I mean, every time I run into him, he looks different. His biceps are a little smaller. His pecs are a little smaller. His back's a whole lot bigger. His glutes are a whole lot bigger. His hamstrings are a whole lot more well-developed. But but every time I visit him, he's like, you got something for me today? And I said, I gave you an airdyne a couple of years ago. Let's see how long it takes you to burn 100 calories. A couple minutes later, he's done. I said, okay, now that you're done this, I gave you this 50-pound slam ball because it's not appropriate for my, for my condition these days. I said, let's do some slam right. balls, superset with the, with the bike, and he can get through it. So I think the key of Metcon, which is really how you build your athletes, is first you train your power exercises. And for a power exercise like a clean and jerk or a snatch, never go above five reps. And then when you train your strength, you know, a front squat, a back squat, something like that, a overhead press, a bench press, even though that's not my favorite exercise, done by themselves. This is not a superset activity as a general rule unless you're in a work capacity Mm -hmm. phase. And then uh, do your assistance work in a superset. For example, we uh, we happen to like the cable lift and the cable chop for rotational strength. And then do your circuit training. But if you're going to do your circuit training, make sure these are easy movements that you can't get, get, get yourself injured in. One maybe be the battle ropes, which we love. One might be the aerodyne. One might be a med ball throw. But do things where they're very simple movements where basically you can have your, you can have your circuit, build your, your anaerobic, aerobic capacity, but you're not going to be doing clean and jerks for time like CrossFit would do. Yeah, it's funny how, you know, you talked about the, the aspect of functional strength. It's funny how that's so separated from the aesthetic look and, you know, the, the thing that people mostly think about when they think about health and fitness is how you look. I think it's so much different to really prioritize your movement and your overall strength. It's just a, a very different way of looking at things than the average person would be apt to do, I suppose. It is. I'd say it's getting better. And unfortunately, the, yeah. fun, the functional training world got overly confused with all these BOSU balls. And look, we, we, we use balance devices for building balance and proprioception and, and, and stability around the ankle, and they're wonderful. But doing a squat on an unstable surface with a barbell not only is high risk for injury, but it's low reward. It's not going to build any kind of true core strength. Right. Uh, to build core strength, you make the upper body unstable and the lower body stable. We love working with balance devices and balance pads because, you know, the more stable we can make that ankle, the less likely we are to actually have an injury. So we use all mm-hmm. those tools. They're wonderful tools. It's just using the right tool for the right job. 
Yeah, so going back to the fact that you talked about the abs and the, the, the classic six-pack versus the core muscles, uh, what is the differentiation there? And, you know, how exactly do you go about training them both or together or separately? That is a really good question. And we view the core as anything from the mid-thighs all the way to the shoulder girdle. And so when most people think of core, they think of their six-pack or their rectus abdominis. Right. Building a six-pack is very easy. You don't even need to train it to have a six-pack. It's Building a six-pack mm-hmm. is about diet. That's, that's not hard to do. All of our athletes right. will ultimately have a six-pack unless they want to perform at their peak. If they want to perform at their peak, they're going to need a two-pack or a four-pack, not a six-pack, because once you get that lean, your performance actually goes down. Yeah, for sure. So, but let's, let's just assuming we're, 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 we're talking about diet and everybody's lean because they all want to be that lean. So in this particular case, what's really going on is if we do overhead lifts, we're going to make the upper body unstable. If we're doing a mm-hmm. kettlebell swing, um, which is kind of a functional equivalent of a hip thrust, we're, we're going to create some extreme you know, power and mobility around the glutes, around the hip flexors, around the hamstrings. If we're training the deadlift, we're effectively training every muscle in the body, including the entire core. If we're doing a rotational lunge with a sandbag, boy, are we really working that entire core, including the rectus abdominis. If we're doing a lot of, we do a lot of carries, for example, where basically we have someone carry a kettlebell at their sides or a kettlebell over their head. We're working their core. If they're doing a lunge with one dumbbell over their head, they're working their entire core as well as their lower body at the same time. We're not big on training the biceps but because they're not really very functional, but we typically do two sets of bicep training for a week per week. And the reason we do that is the long head of the bicep crosses the acromion process of the shoulder. So we find that making the bicep a little stronger, just a little bit increases the shoulder stability. So often Mm -hmm. we basically do a lunge with a curl to a press at the same time. So we can get the function of the lunge, which is a a good hip mobility and core strengthener along with the the additional shoulder stability of the curl and then some overhead press. So we can take a, a very good exercise and make it a better exercise and all of these big movements, the, the squat, the lunge, the deadlift, the power clean, they all convince the body to produce more growth hormone and more testosterone yeah. if you're a male and more IGF-1, which comes out of growth hormone. So we're getting that neuroendocrine response from the exercise itself, which is what's going to cause the muscles to grow and to cause the body to get leaner and to cause the body to get stronger while still having those accessory muscles work. Yeah, it's interesting how so much of what we're talking about kind of feels like it's encompassed in, if I had to sum it up, just that uh, being healthy and being fit is so much more than just a look and a perception because, you know, it's like I keep saying, it just seems like the most hurtful thing to me, to people, is just getting caught up in that look and wanting to look a certain way especially when we have to realize that all of our bodies are different. And so we're going to look different just in that regard. But I was also curious about what, when you talk about the different body fat percentages and performing at an optimal uh, rate, what is the difference there between, you know, having like a really low body fat percentage, like maybe 10% or lower compared to like the 10 to 15% range where I am assuming is what you mean to get, maximal functional capacity out of someone yeah and that's a tough one so i i I generally have my patients on the zone diet and you know the our our clients typically are on the zone diet because we found optimal performance with that 30 percent protein 30 percent fat 40 percent carbohydrate diet and i was really lucky and i had barry sears from the zone diet actually here he did three podcasts with us uh, just on tuesday and i've never i've never heard of the zone diet can you sum that up real quick Absolutely. So the so Barry Sears came up with the Zone Diet back in 1995, um, and he initially worked with some Olympic athletes, and he's he's worked with 25 gold medalist Olympic athletes, and the basis of the Zone Diet is that if we optimize your nutrition, we optimize your hormones, we optimize your health, mm-hmm. wellness, and longevity. So every meal has 30% protein, 30% fat and 40% carbohydrates. And the fat is not coming from saturated fat. It's not coming from polyunsaturated fat like corn oil or soybean oil. It's coming from monounsaturated fats like olive oil or avocado or almonds. So the goal of this, which is a little different than most diets, 
is typically you're here of people thinking they, they of weight training of, you know, calories per pound, and then they figure yep. out or protein per pound. Now the zone diet does determine they, everything is based on protein per pound of lean body mass, not total body mass. Cause why on earth would be coming up with a 250 pound athlete that's got 20% body fat and feed the fat. So he would say, yeah, exactly. he would say, if the person has 200 pounds of lean body mass, we're going to fix, we're going to feed the 200 pounds of lean body mass. And what they would then do is they would take a calculation based on lifestyle of whether you need 0.7 grams per pound or 0.8 grams per pound or one gram per pound of lean body mass for anybody doing our training or heavy kind of mm -hmm. weight training. It's typically one gram per pound of lean body mass. Okay. I was wondering if that's what you meant by lifestyle, just how much of a prioritization is put on weight training or resistance training, essentially kind of where that comes into play. It does, but it also pertains to someone's career. I mean, if okay. someone's doing a one-hour workout three times a week and for the, mo the rest of the time they have the desk job, they might really only need 0.8 grams of protein per pound of lean body mass. If someone has a three-day-a-week training program, but they're also uh, that's their strength and conditioning, but they're also performing martial arts every single day of the week, well, boy, you know, <laughs> they're not going to get away yeah, with a little that. more. They're going to yeah. need more. They're going to need one gram of protein per pound of lean body mass or maybe 1.1 gram of protein per pound of lean body mass. And then that'll determine how much carbohydrates they need and how much fat they need. Now, at some point, following this diet, everybody gets too lean. Yeah. And that's when we need to add more fat into the diet or, or, or more of everything into the diet. And you know, here's how you know when you're too lean. It's not when you look in the mirror and it's like, boy, my six-pack looks good. It's when all of a sudden you're strong. You know, it's not uncommon for someone to have a really good deadlift, a really good squat, a really good clean and jerk, you know, really good aerobic and anaerobic capacity. And then they start to get tired. Mm -hmm. And when they train, their strength goes down a little bit. And, you know, the question is, are they under eating or, or are they overtrained? Because under eating and overtraining, you know, initially present with the same symptoms. Mm -hmm. and, and then it gets worse. And that's where when there's a big hormonal endocrine ab abnormality, which we can talk about anytime you like. But... So once they start to reach that too lean point and they get too tired, that's when we need to basically increase the calories or, and or fat that they're eating because if they get too lean, their performance goes away. So that's that point. So I think there was a really good book that I read a long time ago which said the average Navy SEAL had 13% body fat. Okay. Now, some people perform well at 10% body fat. Some people perform well at 15% body fat. I know that... I typically walk around at nine and a half, between nine and 10% because I spend so much time doing yoga in a 110 degree room in my house because that's really helpful for uh, the RSD that I have. And it seems to just burn too many calories. But, you know, that's a different level of body fat for others. Once I get below 8% body fat, which is happens very carefully if I'm not careful to eat enough, say, almonds with, with my meals to try and add some extra calories. That's when my performance starts to suffer. That's when my pain gets much worse. That's when I get much more uh -huh. fatigued. So it's really an individual nature of, of where you're at. But you know, ten per, somewhere between the ten and fifteen percent body fat is probably optimal for most people to perform at their best. Right. So talk to me a little bit more about. You've mentioned hormones a couple times. Where does that come into play for you? And what are some of your biggest takeaways for someone that, that you'd want them to know about our, our body's hormones and things of that nature. So, you know, once we reach about 30 years old, our hormones may naturally decline. Right. And first thing we want to do to, is we want to actually see what our hormones actually are and what's going on with our hormones and why. For example, if we overtrain, which is typically common in most training environments, Good hormones, such as growth hormone, typically go down. Negative hormones or catabolic steroids that our body produces, i.e. cortisol, tend to go up. When cortisol goes up, testosterone goes down, as does growth hormone go down. Testosterone itself also goes down with overtraining, but actually increases with the correct type of training. Typically things that involve heavier weights typically increase growth hormone. Things that involve anaerobic training, I'm sorry, things that involve heavier weights typically increase testosterone, whereas things that involve mm -hmm. anaerobic training typically increase growth hormone. So what I like to see, you know, with people in general is when they're training, what are their hormones once they're no longer overtrained? Now, like I said, 
before, overtraining is a condition of too little growth hormone, too little testosterone, and too much cortisol. But let's say we optimize that for the person. Then uh, sometimes that's not enough. Sometimes people, for example, someone that studies a lot of Israeli martial arts that gets kicked in the groin constantly, because a lot of martial arts in Israel starts with kicks to the groin or other soft targets. Mm-hmm. You know, some of them need testosterone replacement. Because if testosterone is too low, meaning less than, less than where it's supposed to be on normal lab values, or the free testosterone is too low because they have too much of a protein called sex hormone binding globulin in the blood, someone may actually need testosterone replacement to uh, actually feel and perform at their best. Now, I want to draw a big line between testosterone replacement and steroid use. So if the level of testosterone that's actually normal is between 300 and 1,200, and we see someone coming in that feels horrible, they have no energy, they have no sex drive, they're gaining weight around the middle and they don't know why, they're eating right, they're exercising right, and we send them to their family practitioner and the family practitioner notices that their testosterone is 200, they may need replacement. And replacement is to bring them somewhere on that therapeutic window of what's right for them. Now, what's right for them could be 400 as a testosterone level, it could be 600, it could be 900. And... That's kind of dependent upon where they were when they were young. So in a perfect world, when we're 18 years old, we all get our hormones checked and we have a baseline. But unfortunately, that doesn't happen. So it's the job of the internist or their endocrinologist or the urologist or whoever prescribing their hormones is to find a good level where they're feeling appropriate at. And that is, uh, that's going to be different for everyone. For example, you take someone that was aggressive and felt good in their youth, they might have been walking around with a level of 800. By aggressive, I just mean, you know, like a firefighter paramedic. I'm not referring to, like, someone that's mean and nasty and punching and getting in bar fights all right. the time. Right, right. But, you know, that, that type of person that's got lots of energy, oomph, and enthusiasm might have been walking around at 900, and they may not feel good if they're level 600. They may need to be 900. And their doctor can monitor what's going on with their hemoglobin, their hematocrit, you know, and all the, their cholesterol and their triglycerides and see what's right for them. Or, you know, that might have been an accountant that... Uh, was a naturally shy person that this level walking around was 500 and you replace their level to 500 and they feel like they're walking on cloud nine. So, you know, we are not against testosterone replacement. Um, I've prescribed testosterone to patients before. I've seen some miraculous results. I will never prescribe any type of testosterone replacement to a, to an athlete because I don't ever want it to look like athletic enhancement. Um, I typically prescribe testosterone to patients that were just healthy and well patients and exercise was requested for them. But, you know, getting in that perspective of prescribing for athletic enhancement is very different than prescribing for health and wellness. Hormones, like anything yeah. else, should be in the therapeutic range. We don't, want, we, want, we don't want cholesterol too high. We don't want insulin levels too low either, like the keto diet, because when insulin levels are too low, people actually find themselves in a catabolic state where they're not doing well. We also don't want mm-hmm. insulin levels too high, because if their insulin levels are too high, that basically puts them in a type 2 diabetes state, which is also unhealthy. So, you know, hormones, uh, hormones need to be managed by a medical professional. They need to be in what's called the therapeutic window. Um, and it's, again, you know, there's some of these things on hormones, you know, are still kind of questionable. Is there cardiovascular risk that comes from replacing testosterone? One study says yes, another study says no. So that's a decision a patient can make with their doctor. But we do find people that, are elderly that have low testosterones or low testosterone levels that by replacing their testosterone level can be the difference between ending up in a nursing home and not ending up in a nursing home because wow. testosterone replacement can make the average man 17% stronger without exercise. And sometimes that 17% is the difference between being in a nursing home and not being in a nursing home because uh-huh. the second most common reason people are in nursing homes is lack of strength. And specifically, the lack of ability to do a squat, meaning getting on and off of a toilet, that urinary incontinence related to lack of strength is most likely the reason people are in nursing homes, unless they've had a stroke. Yeah, it's it's easy to forget that when we talk about training and the functional strength and mobility, it, it extends long past our current state of being. And, you know, if you want to optimize your lifestyle for as long as possible, when you even talk about things like being in a nursing home or not, a lot of it starts you know, in your youth or at least at a lot younger age than people would like to realize. It all starts in your youth. It all starts in the lifestyle that you could have done. It all starts in 
you know, when I was younger, you know, being a paramedic was my career and I loved it, but it took a big toll on my body. But I also used to like to go on hundred mile bike rides and swim three miles a day. That was uh-huh. the swim three, two, three miles a day that I did for, was not good for my shoulders. And I've got two rotator cuff tears because of it. And you know, it is what it is. I'm not a surgical candidate because of the RSD. So you, everything that we do in our youth, we have to think about. When people talk to me about, you know, I want to do this activity, I ask them, you know, what, why, and what's your rationale, and are you prepared to accept the consequences of what that does for you 20, 30, 40 years from now? Yeah. I had a and like back to, go yeah, Sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say I, I took in this young man many years ago, and he, he's become a close friend. Now he works at my old company. And he was powerlifting. And I, I trained him initially, and then I advised him not to go into powerlifting. And he says, but I love it. And I said, look, as long as you stay natural on the powerlifting side, it'll keep you from lifting weights that are far beyond what your capabilities would naturally be otherwise. And can you avoid powerlifting with suits? Because that's going to place a lot more yeah. stress. Now, he did stay natural. He did not avoid using the suits. And by the time he was 21, his hips were bothering him, his backs were bothering him. And I said, could you stop now? Could you just, could you just listen to me? And he did. Mm-hmm. And the rest of his friends that continued powerlifting um, under circumstances that were not optimal, you know, they're 25 years old now, and they've, they've got lifetime problems. Yeah. Well, yeah, what I was going to say, just kind of relating it back to my world, I think that a lot of parts about our lifestyle and our businesses, et cetera, are very different just on the base level of, you know, you have a lot more experience than me. I'm only 23. And so when I think about it, I think about it in terms of like people my age and my friends and peers. I'm one of the few, I would say, at least of people that uh, in my immediate network that really prioritizes eating a healthy diet and trying to eat healthy foods and just going past the point of like we talked about, just the aesthetic uh, and the look of trying to look good and a lot of people will want to eat healthy because of that aspect, but especially recently, I've tried to become more cognizant of eating a balanced diet, eating plenty of fruits and vegetables, and like you mentioned, trying to eat those healthy fats, just because for two reasons, mainly for the health benefits of the long term, but in addition to that, another thing you mentioned was just setting yourself up with a lifestyle that's going to suit your goals in the long term and be something that can be sustainable. Because another thing that that jumped to mind when we were talking about that is that there's a very specific reason why all of my branding goes around the sense of uh, lifestyle. It's Jay Parker Fit Life because I think that that's really the most important thing when it comes to health and fitness is setting up something that you can be consistent with over time because it really is. That's what health and fitness comes down to is making it a part of your lifestyle so that you can truly see the effective results. And, you know, it's very interesting because I re- when, I, when I looked at your social media and what you were doing, I really looked at it and I loved it. And I said, wow, this guy gets it. I did not know mm-hmm. you were 23. I would have assumed you were 35 to 45 and you'd been around for a while and you, 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 you had learned some hard lessons. So, boy, doing that at mm-hmm. 23 years old, you've got it early. And, you know, that's just fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, I think that uh, I'm ho- I hope that I'm really setting myself up for the long term, too. And it's another, it's another thing where part of the learning experience was uh, the first ever, my, my intro to health and fitness was just wanting to start weightlifting when I was 15 or 16. And so it kind of coming from there and realizing that, yes, a lot of the things you can learn from weightlifting and bodybuilding are helpful, but you have to look at it from an all-around health perspective too, because another one of the things that I've talked a lot about with other people is I've come from being a really big fan of like the macro tracking and if it fits your macros to, like I said, now just trying to eat a healthy diet. I try to eat mostly whole foods and nutritious foods. And I'm not so big on the macro tracking and calorie counting per se, because that can really kind of be taken too far in the sense of, yes, I think it's important to eat those quote unquote junk foods every once in a while, just for your personal sanity and your uh, adherence to your program. But I, I don't think that it's something that you should be doing too often just because we really don't know too much about the long-term effects of eating these highly processed foods. And, uh, you know, it's just kind of a lot of those things are relatively new to, to our, our, our people uh, just in the sense that 
you know, who knows what it's going to be like if you process foods every day uh, as far as your cognition and other things are concerned as you get older. That's something that kind of worries me along that aspect. And it should. So I can tell you 20 years ago when I first started, you know, actually when I was 14 years old, I did a little bodybuilding because that's all I knew about in those days. Mm -hmm. But bodybuilding, you know, in, in 1984 was a little different in terms of bodybuilding now. And here's re the reason. Today we have all these anti-estrogen drugs, so you could take almost as much testosterone as you want without developing breasts. And mm -hmm. we've got, you know, not only anti-estrogens, but we've got estrogen receptor blockers. So people were very limited in the hormones they could have taken then. And what used to happen is even amongst the people that were using steroids, they were taking very low doses in those days. So people knew that if they wanted their arms to grow, they had a squat. And if they wanted their shoulders to grow, they had to lift heavy th objects over their head. And yeah. so in those days, bodybuilding was actually functional by nature because yeah, whether, no they were, whether they were using steroids or not, they couldn't take enough of a dose of steroids to really be that big. And if you look at you know Arnold Schwarzenegger, who I think actually looked fantastic, but he was also an athlete. Oh, yeah. But he was walking around yeah. at 240 pounds. Now, that's not that big. I mean, it's mm -hmm. big. Real big, but it's not that big. Not, Today we have bodybuilders yeah. running around at 300 plus pounds. Exactly. And they can't move. I mean, they can't even put on a shirt or take a shirt off without help. Mm -hmm. Um Yeah, I really like, I was going to say, I really like studying the old school bodybuilding. And like you mentioned, Arnold Schwarzenegger, he's one of my favorite people to look up to. Mostly, not only for the fact that he was a great bodybuilder and a great model of what it's like to live a healthy lifestyle, but I'm a big fan of the fact that he was able to succeed in the realm of bodybuilding and then translated the skills and tactics he learned from that to be effective in his acting career and then his political career. I would definitely recommend, I don't know if you've ever heard of his biography, Total Recall, but it's a great book, I think, just because, like I mentioned, it really shows how the skills you develop from one uh, area of your life or one career interest or pursuit can translate to any other number of realms as well. And I think that that's really all encompassed in the old school bodybuilders. They knew that it took hard work. And I think a lot more so than today, they really embodied a sense of they were healthy guys for the most part. They weren't. Yeah. Like you mentioned, I think you'd be kidding yourself if you said that any of them weren't doing steroids, but I think that it was a lot more controlled and a lot smaller scale than it is these days. But it, you, you, you really touched upon something that's just so critically important to me is you touched on the mental toughness aspect of it. Mm -hmm. And that's why certain special op operations communities actually do so well. They're not making someone run 15 miles a day and doing 1,000 pull-ups and 1,000 push-ups and a bunch of star jumpers per day to try and make someone sit in cold water for hours, uh, for 15 minutes at a time, and then roll around in sand and go back in the cold water to make them miserable. What they're doing is they're trying to see who has the mental fortitude to be there. It's never going to be the best athlete. It's often not the smartest person that, that typically wins in their career. It's typically the person that's got the most grit, the person that will just never quit. And whether you're looking at Arnold Schwarzenegger and his phenomenal career or, or Sylvester Stallone that's written and directed more movies than you can possibly count over the last mm -hmm. several decades, these guys, they have the heart and mind of a champion. And what they're doing is they took all the effort they learned in their training and they applied that level of discipline in their diet and their, in their career. And they've built incredibly good careers and they did it because, you know, exercise was just one part of their lifestyle, but that one part of their lifestyle taught them how to be good at anything. So uh, that's one of the things we try and do with all of our training programs. But, and I, and I really believe should come from exercise in general one shouldn't just have the energy to complete their workout. One should take the level of discipline they put in their workout and be able to bring that to all aspects of their life. Yeah, I agree. I'm, I'm glad you brought up the mental toughness aspect because I'd, I'd love for that to be the last thing we address here as we start to wind down. I meant to ask you more about that recent, or sooner, but I, I love learning about the mental toughness aspect of fitness and talking to people about that. What are some of your biggest, blessings or principles or reoccurring themes you like to address when it comes to mental well-being and mental toughness? So 
I'll give you the things that I find to be most important, and they've really helped me throughout my life, and I had a phenomenal career um, until I got really grossly injured and had to refocus priorities, and then I used that mental toughness to n- avoid pain medications and develop you know, physical therapy exercises to, be, to try and treat mm-hmm. myself on a daily basis. The first one is hard exercise, and we're all capable of more than we think we are, but the hard exercise has to be smart exercise. For yeah. example... Doing 100 reps of squats with a barbell on your back is not smart because what's ultimately going to happen is once you get fatigued, you're going to do something that's improper technique and, and you're going to get hurt. Having said that, you can bless you, you can uh, get on an Airdyne bike and you can push that Airdyne bike pretty darn hard. And when you feel a little discomfort, push a little harder. When you feel a little more discomfort, assuming you're healthy and you have no cardiovascular risk factors, push it a little harder. And then you can really see what you're made of. So hard exercise under the right environment really builds a lot of mental toughness. Authentic communication, meaning communicating honestly with those around you, even when it's not easy, also builds some yeah. degree of mental toughness because it teaches you how to always be you know, present in the moment and honest and authentic. Yeah. And in the so end, you, uh, you ne- you're never living a life where you've got 4,000 different lies that you need to remember which lie you send to which person. So I think that's part of, you know, developing mental toughness. Avoiding procrastination. For example, there, I've found, you know, when I was in graduate school, I used to write all my papers in the first week of the entire semester. Now, I didn't turn them in because if I turned them in, they would just be told they were inadequate, and I'd be told to yeah. rewrite them 40 times. And then in the end, I'd have the same paper that I started with. But I literally wrote them all in the first week or the, or the second week. And I did that because the anxiety and stress would sap me of my energy so if I just got it over with, whenever I could, I could actually relax. So, I mean, I, it was torture getting them out in the first two weeks, but the amount of stress uh-huh. that I actually saved was there. And lastly, I think there needs to be some form of meditation or breathing exercise. And look, any kind of meditation, everybody has a different kind of meditation that works for them. And what I mean by that, you know, there, there's breathing techniques like box breathing where you inhale for four, hold for four, exhale for four, and then hold the exhale for, for four or five seconds, what have you. There's other types of slow and deep breathing. There's my personal favorite, which is yoga. And the reason I like yoga is I'm the type of person that would find that, you know, my mind wanders too quickly. But if I have to basically link a breath to a movement and focus on the breathing while I'm moving, that's the perfect type of meditation for my particular body and mind type. And in the end, yeah. I get more flexible. And by learning how to be in an uncomfortable position and breathing through that, that also develops mental toughness. So I think uh, those are really the, uh, the essential elements of mental toughness for me. That and, prob- and lastly, I want to say good nutrition. Because if you're not yeah. healthy, you're never going to be able to function uh, properly. You just mentioned two of my favorite principles and things to learn about, uh, especially in addition to meditation, which was not even one of the two that I, I wanted to talk about more, but just back to meditation. I think that for me, the most important aspect of meditation, and this might be another one of the, I don't necessarily want to use the word disconnect, but kind of just dichotomies in our different ages and life experiences. I think that at my age, it's a lot easier to get wrapped up in other people's opinions and get wrapped up in the news cycle and negativity and this and that sort of things that all fall into that same category. And for me, meditation is a really good way to separate myself from all of that and try to, you know, like the ultimate goal of meditation, a lot of times someone will tell you just become more centered around yourself. And I think that's so important in the age we live in when you can just be plugged into social media all the time and always be plugged into the news and politics it's really important to try to just get in touch with yourself and who you are. I think that's the meditation. That's the the main benefit to me. I think you've put that in such a great perspective. It it grounds you in who you are and, and what's going on. Now you mentioned the news. Um, I almost recommend, you know, not watching the news. And the reason Mm -hmm. I say that is if it's really important, you're going to find out about it. Yeah. But, Whichever channel you watch, it all feels kind of biased to me. Mm-hmm. And it all feels kind of negative to me. I mean, if I, you know, when I, when, you know, I finish a yoga session in my 110 degree room in my house and all of a sudden my mind's clear and my body hurts a lot less, 
And if I actually look around me, there's so many good things going on. I mean, just so many good things, whether it's the rabbit that's sitting in my backyard that came to visit or, you know, my wife just brought home groceries for which case, because, you know, walking for me isn't necessarily the best option after what happened to my foot. And it's like, wow, Mm -hmm. there's food in the house. And all these things are, that are going on around me are great. And I've seen so many good things, but if you watch the news, all I hear is negative, 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 negative. They don't tell yeah. you about all the wonderful things that are actually going on. So I almost feel like exactly. the news takes you out of the mental zone. It's like that classic, you know, saying, if it, if it bleeds, it leads. You know, that's the news. It's just, they need people's attention. And unfortunately, the best way to get people's attention is just to, I guess, worry them, talk about, like we talked about negative aspects of society and what's in the going on of the world. And when there's so many good things going on. So, Mm -hmm. you know, the meditation and you mentioned the news or I wouldn't have gone there. Now you had a second component you were going to discuss. Yeah. I initially, I just want to talk about, I think that honesty and procrastination, two uh, of the things you discussed there, two of my favorite topics personally recently. And one of my questions was going to be just how do you feel about the white lie so to speak and you know a lot of people argue that when it comes to honesty a lot of times we say white lies to whether it's valid or not we say that it's to protect other people or you know protect their feelings help them feel better how do you feel about that aspect are you a person who tries to be as honest as possible regardless of the situation I try and be honest in every aspect of my life. If I, I'd prefer to say nothing than to give someone mm-hmm. some comfort. And I, I, in many cases, I feel like the white lie is one of the most dangerous things out there. And for example, I have a friend that wanted to start a business. And because I was a strategy consultant in business, he sent some things my way. And he was considering you know, spending a large amount of money actually investing in this business. Mm-hmm. And I looked at his plan it was a friend, so it was something I did for free. And I didn't see how he could be successful. And he asked me, what do you think? He said, I'm really excited about this. And I I was very honest with him. And I said, look, I just don't think this is going to work. I think that what you want to do is wonderful, but it wouldn't work for this reason, this reason, this reason. I said, I don't want you to stop giving up being an entrepreneur because you're really smart, really capable. I said, but since you asked my honest opinion, I don't want to see you spend this amount of money on this particular thing and lose your ability to actually create another business in the future. So being honest, I don't think this is the best thing for you. I'd love to tell you that it is, but I don't want to give you what you want to hear and then cause you to lose whatever whatever resources you have. I said, now, if you'd like my help, I'd suggest you go here, here, and here, and then come back to me. But uh, that would be that. Now, the only time I think a white lie is ever good is if your wife or your girlfriend says, does this dress make me look fat? The answer is always no. (laughs) There you go. Yeah, that might be one situation. (laughs) But other than that, I really don't believe that uh, lying is ever really a good option. Yeah, I think, have you ever heard of Sam Harris? Are you familiar with any of his work? I am not. So he's, uh, I think that he's like initially a PhD in neuroscience, but now he talks a lot about human tendencies and why we lie and why it's good to be honest. He has a really good podcast called making sense. And then he has a handful of books out. Uh, I have not got around to reading any of his books yet, but one I do want to read. And it's funny because it's been on my mind so much. When we're talking about this. It's called lying. And it's essentially just why you should be honest in every situation. Uh, and he, and I mentioned the white lies and he talks a lot, a lot about that in the book too, from what I've heard. So I think you'd you really resonate with Sam Harris. He's an interesting guy, especially in that category. I but can't wait to going read on it. to Yeah, but going on to procrastination, uh, how do you deal with that? And, I mean, I think it's just such an inherently human thing. How do you – I don't want to use the word force yourself into action, but how do you prioritize taking action over contemplation, especially when it comes to, in a business, it's easy to have these ideas and ruminate on the things you want to do and not really take the action. You know, for me, it goes back to a technique, a meditation technique I learned many, many years ago. And well, we're going back almost 20 years ago. And I was given the advice in martial arts. We typically practice the sequence in our head before we actually do it. Mm -hmm. And 
spar in your head before it happens, lift heavy in your head before it happens. So I think it was Sun Tzu or Sun Se technically pronounced was the art of war. And it said win first and then go to war. So mm-hmm. whenever I meditate over a topic, I typically think of, let's say, and I don't do this anymore, but let's say I was going to do a 500-pound deadlift for five reps. When I was younger, that was nothing. And it hurts when you do the 500-pound deadlift for five reps. That first rep, when you pick yeah. it off the floor, it's heavy, it's hard. I would literally imagine the deadlift, where I was going to feel it, the discomfort I was going to feel, and how I was going to get past those sticking points in every single repetition. And that's literally how I would do my meditation. I wouldn't just focus on all the, all the, the roses that were out there. I would focus on the good points, the pain points, and getting past the pain points. So when it comes to me for things that I don't want to do, I typically don't want to do things because they either hurt or because they're things that I'm not good at. So for me personally, whatever I have to do in life that I don't want to do, for example, I have RSD. And people with RSD typically recommend, I mean, they're typically asking for limb amputations because their limb hurts so bad. Wow. So those first steps out of bed in the morning when my foot's going to touch the floor, I know that it's going to hurt worse than anything I can possibly think of. So I lay in bed in the morning. I'm there for about 30 seconds. And I think as soon as I take that first step, it's going to really hurt. The second step is going to hurt less. The third step's going to hurt less. The third step's going to hurt less. Now, God, I'm going to walk down the stairs. That's really not going to feel good on that foot. Yep. And then as soon as I do that and I eat breakfast and I start moving around, it's going to feel a little better. And then as soon as I get to that hot yoga studio that's in my house, I'm going to stretch that foot out. I'm going to massage that foot. And then I'm going to do a yoga session. And by the time I'm done that yoga session, I'm going to have four good hours before anything bothers me again. And then I can do some more yoga. So it's instantly, it's fight through that level of, of discomfort and think about the win that you're going to have afterwards. Yep. Yeah, I mean that can be translated to anything, right? It's like, it's and, and maybe maybe you would agree, or maybe this is different for you based on your condition. But I think a lot of the times we tell ourselves that something's going to be worse in our head than it really is. Not to discredit your pain, I'm sure it's still very excruciating, but I'm sure that a lot of times you kind of maybe get more in your head about it than is actually something what you what you experience. Oh, you, you couldn't be more right now. In my case, the pain is very real, but the fear of the pain could mm-hmm. actually be worse. And most of the RSD mm-hmm. patients I've had, the fear of actually trying to work through that initial level of pain is worse. The fear of someone that has a math phobia that's in an MBA program, when really it's, it's something that anybody could learn. It's just a matter of trying to learn it and finding someone that can teach it to you. The fear mm-hmm. of anything, writing that paper if you don't like to write papers, I mean, something people are afraid of is public speaking, something which I don't understand. If you actually survey people about their fear of death and their fear of public speaking, they're more afraid to speak in public. Yeah. So my advice is go do a lot of it until you're not afraid of it anymore, until you like it. Yeah. Well, not even, I I agree with that, but I think that one of the really important keys with anything that you fear is that I think the key is you have to limit your exposure at first. Like if you're afraid of public speaking, I don't think the best course of action would be go speak in front of a hundred people. It's probably go speak in front of two or three people because over time it's like those in- incremental increases, just like you and I know very well uh, when it comes to fitness, if you have a goal, you have to go there slowly, but just making sure that it's slowly but surely and you're always making progress. That can really be translated to any of those other fears and difficulties as well. Oh, you couldn't be right right now. I like elephants. I wouldn't eat them. But if I had to eat an elephant, I would do it one bite at a time because the thought of doing it is just too much. Yeah. Yeah. So you, All right, you well, did a great, you, no, that's a great perspective you had. Yeah. Well, it was really fun, Mike. I think we resonated on a lot of these topics. I'll go ahead and ask you the last question I always ask on the podcast, which is might be interesting for you and different because you've had so many different experiences, but what do you want your story to be at the end of the day? And maybe that's something that's changed a lot since your goals and your lifestyle changed. But what is the story that you want others to tell about you and that you hope to encompass? You know, by the time I die, I can make it that truly elite level fitness and nutrition is available for anyone. So they mm-hmm. can truly get the benefits of fits of being healthy. When I was young, diabetes was rare and obesity was rare. Mm-hmm. And I went to the beach the other day um, to photograph uh, one of our yoga instructors. 
And while I was there, I saw that almost everyone had a pre-diabetes belly. And if I can use the internet, because I worked for Cisco for many years and I'm good with tech, and I can help my wife actually build this business to the point where she can make good fitness and good health and good wellness available, and we can keep people from being sick or actually treat people with appropriate treatments so they can actually have a more functional life and a happier, healthier life, I'd feel like my life had a really good purpose. No doubt there. I love that mission. Well, thanks, Mike. Do you want to end with any closing words, closing thoughts? Uh, Let people know where they can find you if they want to know more about your work. Absolutely. So uh, for physical medicine and rehab or strength and conditioning, they could find us at our website, which is www.elitefitnessnow.com. So www.elitefitnessnow.com. We have a YouTube channel, which is called Elite Fitness Now. And they can listen to our podcast, which is called The Survival of the Fittest Podcast, which is available on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and pretty much almost any other place where podcasts are hosted. All right. Well, thanks, Mike, for the time today. I really enjoyed the conversation with you and hope that we get to uh, stay in touch in the future. Thanks so much, Jake. I agree with you completely. This has been the What's Your Story podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, uh, share with family and friends, and leave me a review. I really appreciate any and all feedback. Thanks.